welcome to the Intellectual Freedom Podcast. Here we analyze politics, culture, technology, and society at large through the lens of critical thinking and open-mindedness, not demagoguery and partisan hyperbole. I'm Dr. David Hopkins, humanities professor, your host and guide. So without further delay, let's get started. So great to be here and to be back again. I've had so many projects going on. My ability to post podcasts, which is such a fun exercise for me, has just been really hard with my course schedule, my design schedule with the college. It's been hard. Plus, I'm putting the final touches on a new project and a new course that I'll be very excited to talk more about as I get closer to completion and launch. It's actually going to be for the first time I have ever produced that I'll be teaching a course to just the general public. But more on that later. One of my daily activities is to read every single day. And to read something that isn't a blog or a social media post or some dumbed-down mainstream media article. Right now I'm rereading for the second time this year because it's such a powerful book, George Orwell's 1984. And if you've never read this book, I highly recommend you do it. I I think it's just a must-read considering the state of politics, culture, and society today. How someone could envision things so clearly decades before it even happened. It's just literally astounding to me when I read this novel. But today in the podcast, I just want to go ahead and grab a key passage that I was reading just the other day because it stuck with me. And it comes back to this idea of the politics of division. So without going too deep into the entire novel and the entire plot, basically the book is just about life in this dystopian, completely government-controlled world where personal relationships, personal freedoms, even family are literally 100% subservient to this all-controlling, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful central government. And The amazing thing is so much of what we see in our surveillance society today, uh, this ever-growing global elite domination world, even the the ruling political parties here in the United States having a quote-unquote solution for absolutely everything in life is reality in this book. And I want to read some text to you about life in a world in which freedom of thought, political freedom, And almost just being human is dying. So humor me for just a minute, um, because as Orwell says, this, this quote here of society and the power structures of society, quote, If the machine of society were used deliberately for a positive end, hunger, overwork, dirt, illiteracy and disease could be eliminated within a few generations. And in fact, without being used for any such purpose, but by a sort of automatic process, by producing wealth, which it was sometimes impossible not to distribute, the machine did raise the living standards of the average human being very greatly over a period of about 50 years. 
at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. But it was also clear that an all-around increase in wealth threatened the destruction. Indeed, in some sense, was the destruction of a hierarchical society. End quote. Now, I found this particular passage fascinating because we get consumed with this idea that technology and advancement is raising the standard of living for everyone inevitably. And and it does to a certain extent. But in fact, what we are beginning to see emerging is this gendered hierarchy of elites who as general wellness, general wealth begins to spread, they become very threatened by this movement. So they need to step in and they need to control very carefully, very methodically, very systematically the power of these new technologies to ensure not only that the elite stay elite and the masses stay suppressed, but in fact, they stay suppressed willingly or even better, rather unknowingly. The passage continues like this, quote, In earlier ages, class distinctions had been not only inevitable but desirable. Inequality was the price of civilization. With the development of machine production, however, the case was altered. Even if it was still necessary for human beings to do different kinds of work, it was no longer necessary for them to live at different social or economic levels. Therefore, from the point of view of the new groups who were on the point of seizing power, human equality was no longer an ideal to be striven after, but a danger to be averted. In more primitive ages, when a just and peaceful society was in fact not possible, it had been fairly easy to believe in it. The idea of an earthly paradise in which men should live together in a state of brotherhood without laws and without brute labor had haunted the human imagination for thousands of years. And this vision had a certain hold even on the groups who actually profited by each historical change. The heirs of the French, English, American revolutions had partly believed in their own phrases about the rights of man, freedom of speech, equality before the law, and the like, and have even allowed their conduct to be influenced by them to some extent, end quote. So as I read these two passages, something just struck in my mind. It just stuck there. As I look out at the landscape of American culture, the cancel culture, the white privilege, the alphabet organizations of BLM, LGBTQ, or any other acronym in vogue at the time, the best of all possible outcomes for those in power is a divided population and the lower and the middle classes at each other's throats. The best way to solidify power at the top of the hierarchy in modern American culture is to ensure the lower and the middle classes are completely divided. We can divide them any way that we want and they will divide them any way that they can do it, whether it would be race, sex, 
gender, religion, heck, even even mask wearing or vaccinations are now a political weapon. So we need not look back too far, but to the 1960s, just a mere 60 years ago in the civil rights movement, there was just a massive backlash against the power structure for social change. And it happened on many fronts. Civil rights with Martin Luther King, women's rights, revolt against the military-industrial complex, and huge, positive, wonderful change occurred as the masses of society banded together in large enough, mun- in large enough numbers to affect real change. Yet it's fascinating looking back to the 60s, and this was pre, I wasn't even alive in the 60s, so I'm, but as I look at the documents, this, this movement, this thing that brought about major change in civil rights and gave women the right to vote, and I mean, we could just tick off a number of boxes, this movement was very short-lived as this heave of popular momentum by the masses, it literally freaked out the elites. And it caused a massive counterstrike by corporations and government to reassert itself with a, with a goal to end this powerful bottom-up assault on the power structures. And this leads to the 70s and the go-go corporate wealth movement of the 80s and the 90s and still is in play even even today. So here's something that I want to make sure we all get here. So listen to this. To decrease the political divide, that would be you and I and the people. We have to understand these factors that work to divide us. And that the political parties and the ruling elite, they do not want to end the divide. They actually want to increase the divide. Let me just say that one more time. If you're a Democrat, your party doesn't want unity. They want divide. If you are a Republican, they don't want unity. They want divide. You may wonder, but but why? Why would they want us divided? See, and Orwell points this out in, in, in the novel 1984, as long as those in power, or in our case in 2021, both political parties, they have their respective tribes at the other tribe's throat, they hold power, they take more power, and they control the dialogue and the masses. All the blame, and there's so much blame to go around with the dysfunction and the corruption of our entire government from its top all the way to its bottom. All the blame, though, is not thrust towards Washington, D.C. and the politicians, which is where we really need to push the anger. Instead, we have the citizens thrusting their anger towards the other voters in the other party and other Americans versus honing in on who is responsible, which are these ruling elite parties. I challenge you, no matter how ideologically far you are to the left or how far you are to the right, to just listen incredibly carefully to your favorite D.C. politician and then watch 
to see if their actions speak of reconciliation or division. Sure, the rhetoric can say they want a unity, but their actions don't do it. And of course, every once in a while, they dust off the old, we want to work together with the other side speech. Biden hilariously has held a couple of photo op meetings to quote unquote, reach across the aisle with Republicans. And then promptly after the meeting's over and they do this conference about how they all want to work together, every time they vote, they just vote completely opposite of each other and literally no compromises anywhere to be had. They just dismiss it. Then the rhetoric returns of the other side being closed-minded, racist, socialist, blah, 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 blah. So what do we do about this? I mean... We can sit and complain about it, and I could sit and complain about it, and you can complain about it. But what what are we going to do? Because if it is on you and me and society, what must we do day in and day out? Number one, to stay sane. And number two, to do our best to try and change the dialogue. This is the million-dollar question. So number one, psychologically... Fear appears to be at what is driving this polarization. So hear this very carefully. Fear is one of the most powerful emotions that we have. Fear of loss, fear of insignificance, fear of change. You must evaluate the words of the politicians and the media very, very carefully. And you cannot get sucked into their rhetoric of the end of the world. Remember the the rhetoric, oh my goodness, Donald Trump is never going to leave the White House. Remember that fear-mongering? Did he leave? Yeah, he left. Remember the day one Biden, that that Joe Biden was going to destroy capitalism rhetoric? Has it happened yet? No, it has not. But many will say, oh, oh, but, but, but you don't understand. It's still coming. It's just not here yet. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Remember all the times that the Democrats said, oh my gosh, Trump's going to destroy this. Trump's going to start World War III. Trump's going to do this. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. It lasted four years and it never happened. The easiest scapegoat for the politician is the pornography of future doom. You know that stuff. That, oh, it's coming tomorrow rhetoric. It's scary. Heck, Al Gore's doomsday environmental clock, the world was going to end. I think it's expired three times now, or maybe twice, whatever. I know AOC has a new doomsday clock too, and I think she's only given us like six years left before the entire globe is over. Don't buy the doomsday pornography rhetoric that we hear, because as long as we buy it, and as long as we accept it, the politicians are going to keep using it against us us, we, the people. Do we need to be prudent, careful, aware of our surroundings and what's going on? Yes, of course we do. Do we need to let stress, anxiety, and the cable news channel pull on that emotional fear lever every single day? No, we do not. Actually, hell no. We do not. You take away a primary weapon of the powerful when you refuse 
to buckle to all the doomsday rhetoric that is dividing us. And then number two, a warped perspective of the other side and how you perceive that they believe things versus how they actually view things. This is the most dangerous thing that is going on right now. Literally, family against family are refusing to talk, to engage, to shut off other family members because they don't think like they do. What a horrific, terrible, awful thing to see happen. It is heartbreaking to see that happen. The perception and the stereotyping of somebody else has got to stop. And if you're guilty of it, I've been guilty of it, everybody can be guilty of it, it has to stop. What we see on cable news, Twitter, social media, is almost never the middle perception but the extreme perceptions. But we can get lost in all the rhetoric and begin to believe the extreme view is the common view because all we ever hear is the extreme view. And when we disengage in normal conversation, in rational, coherent intellectual discussions rather than absurd, ridiculous, ignorant name-calling and baseless lying, we are stuck in this ugly, vicious cycle of extremes. Here's just a breaking news. Not every Gen Z or millennial is a raging liberal wanting to live in socialism. And not every single baby boomer is a closed-minded, greedy conservative. The stereotypes of the extreme are an excellent weapon for the politicians and the power brokers of the nation that keep us divided. And a divided nation is going to ultimately lead to one winner, the ruling political class and the elite wealthy class. The political class will keep power. The wealthy class will keep their money. Both of these entities feed each other nonstop. Like George Orwell's 1984, the best scenario for the elite is one in which the masses are for the most part okay, but they direct their anger when they have it and when they have a grievance and they look for accountability that the object of the fault is the other. It's always the other. It's never the people in charge. It's never the wealthy. It's never the people who actually have the power. Instead, it's like this ugly, nasty creature that's eating you from the inside out. If you think about it, the average Democrat and the average Republican have way more in common with each other than they will ever have with the ideological extremist political classes or the ruling elite in the wealthy class. We, the people, need to start acting like this is the truth, because it is, versus tearing each other down 
name-calling and stereotyping fellow Americans. This is America's greatest hope. A united masses of everyday people. This is what the Constitution is supposed to do. As if and when this happens, then actual real change at the top will occur. If not, we may continue to head towards the ugly, dystopian world that we see in George Orwell's 1984 or countless other writings. I hope we make the right choice collectively. But today, yes, today, you and I each can do our part. And number one, not get duped by the political class and their fear-mongering, fear-pornography. And number two, we can look at our fellow citizens, not in this extremist light, but the fact that actually the people on the left and the people on the right have way more in common with each other than they will ever have with the ruling political elite or the absurdly wealthy classes. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. This is such a critical, important topic, this American divisiveness. But we have so much power, more power than we give ourselves credit for if only we would all just grab it in our own way. Wouldn't it just be an amazing thing if we could make our politicians behave like adults, make rational, intellectual decisions for the good of the country versus the good of their political party versus the two-year-old name-calling temper tantrum fits of our current brood of D.C. dwellers that we have right now? But for you and me too, let's challenge ourselves to not be a part of the corruption and not be duped like fools anymore i hope you enjoyed the podcast today if you did please click like or follow and and you're going to be alerted when new podcasts come available and i hope you'll tune in again until the next time i hope you have a wonderful day and a wonderful week